continuing with this chapter, Hearing Dharma. <clears throat> this is uh, the first chapter of the book. We can't increase or decrease things. We tend to think that things aren't right, that they're too big or too small. Why are they too big or too small? Because of our perception. Such is merely the deluded desire of uninstructed people, and it is as foolish and tiring as someone boxing and wrestling with a tree. So the Buddha advises to see according to Dharma. So this was a very uh, common theme in Lumpur Cha's teachings um, about uh, about size and uh, with thinking of things as too big or too small. And uh, he often would use the example of of, uh, of a hole in the ground and uh, or trying to reach something in a hole in the ground and saying, oh, you know, the hole is too deep, uh, or rather than thinking, oh, my arm, my arm is not long enough. Um, and the... Uh, the judgment of things as being big or small, he would often pick up something and say, you know, uh, is this big or small? Uh, well, it depends what you compare it to. You know, <laughs> Compared to a, an ant, it's quite big. Compared to an elephant, it's quite small. So uh, how big is something? And even though that might not seem like any kind of big deal, <laughs> pun intended, um, that uh, a, uh, if you really take that to heart, you see how, how much we... Um, we think in terms of a human scale. We think uh, we measure the world in terms of our our kind of human judgments, and think that's reality just because it's our human scale and what we think of as big or small or fast or slow. Um, but uh, you know, the Pucha was encouraging and embodying a, a quality of vision that's not that's sort of tied up with those or seeing that. It's all relative, uh, and what you, when you call something big or something small or something important or unimportant, it's like, well, uh, how much of that is just the conditioning of, of perception? And uh, and so, even though it might not seem like a a very substantial thing or not a big thing, um, it uh, uh, it's a very potent kind of reflection to contemplate scale, uh, how big things are, how small things are, the length of time. I remember, um, I think uh, Rachaya gave me a book last year called The End of Everything, uh, which is uh, a lot of, about the the um, kind of cosmological perce- uh, perspective, uh, about the, the nature of the universe, the physical universe. And uh, one of the, the comments that's made in there is somebody saying, uh, I forget who the scientist was that the author was quoting, but she's uh, the author... Um, uh, quoted this other scientist as saying, you know, it, it could be the case that there are um, beings that uh, will evolve, that will have, you know, lives that are trillions and trillions and trillions of years long. Uh, our own universe, since the Big Bang, is about 13 and a half billion years, but there's no reason why there shouldn't be beings that have lives that, that are, uh, you know, mi- uh, trillions of trillions of trillions of years long according to our measuring of things and that a single thought form might take 10 trillion years to arise take shape and pass away that's just a thought in their mind there's no reason why that shouldn't happen and uh, I, I personally i find those quite um, uh, useful to to uh, consider that yeah <laughs> so a thought taking you know uh, 
um, uh, trillions of times longer than our universe has been in existence to arise and pass away. If they, well, thought goes very quickly. Well, compared to what? <laughs> or that's a very, very slow thought compared to what? Uh, and so that uh, development of wise reflection on, on size and scale and how we compare things it can bring a, a quite a, a a helpful perspective on on this the automatic way that we measure things according to our, our human level of what's fast or slow what's uh, what's uh, I say big or, or small and that um, that kind of contemplation I think is is something that is help again it's it's a way of of developing that uh, insight into anatta not self because of we measure things, big or small, you know, long or short, quick or slow, according to our human scale. But w- what makes that real? What makes the human scale the, the, the defining way of measuring anything? There's, a, there's also a famous um, philosophical essay by a, 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 an academic called Thomas Nagel called What Is It Like to Be a Bat? And uh, <clears throat> and essentially, the the theme is well, what, you think well, well, it must be very so strange to be a bat, you know, finding your way around the universe by by uh, by hearing and and uh, using echoes to to find, uh, to locate yourself. That must be so weird, so strange. But the the, the theme of, of his essay is really well, to be a bat is exactly like this. <laughs> to to a bat, it's completely ordinary to find its way around. By hearing and to find the shape of the world through the the, the realm of uh, of sound, um, or like if you're a bear, um, you have very poor eyesight but a really really good nose. So a bear develops its perception of the landscape through a lot through smell rather than through through vision. You know, bears have an extraordinarily acute sense of smell. So we get used to uh, to our human uh, our, uh, sort of patterns of perception and thinking and uh, just that question of well, what makes this real why, why do we think that this is so much more substantial or so more significant than an- another way of measuring things so it's a, a way of developing insight into the empty and selfless nature of perception and it's so so often so much of our troubles and the troubles of the world are based on believing perceptions to be absolutely solid and permanent and, and real so to continue whatever we may perceive has its existence according to nature and merely that if we have awareness that knows according to dharma then no matter what things arise there is no unhappy result whatever may happen to the body will not affect us we will see that there is no profit in compounded phenomena and we will remain unshakable in our own place all things pacified. The Buddha said to investigate this body and the other foundations of mindfulness. There is nothing to solve or undo. We just need to know according to the truth. The body experiences birth, aging and death. There's nothing stable in it. Know that this reality is Dharma. It is the truth and there's nothing to change, destroy or solve. When you get to this point, there's nothing more to say. There's no more burden to carry. If you know according to the truth, there's no heedlessness about what you're doing, wherever you may be. You just see things as they are, conditions arising and passing away. 
Then, what will you seek? What will you get upset and cry about? What do you want to toil and suffer over? What do you want to have or be? When will you say things sorry, when will you say things are big or small, long or short? In the end, what will you say about nature? There is this cycle of existence, and that's all. When you see this profound truth, you'll be at peace, free, without sorrow, in conflict with no one. So again, as in the last couple of readings, he's taking this very radical way of speaking in, in terms of uh, not trying to, to fix the world or fix things, uh, <clears throat> not, uh, say, trying to um, end suffering by, by fixing, by, uh, by tweaking and changing uh, the world, but uh, rather recognizing you know, that in this moment life is exactly like this, so that again, it's not uh, encouraging a, a a passivity or a, a dissociation or a disconnection from the worldly activity and responsibilities and responsivity to to life and the world, but rather trying to to shake that habit of believing in our judgments and trying to end suffering by by fixing things and assuming that that fix will really bring things to a uh, and a quality of, of conclusion or, or resolution. Uh, and uh, as he would often say, that to seek um, security in that which is in, intrinsically insecure, to, to seek completion in that which is uncompletable, uh, you're bound to be disappointed. Uh, again, it can come across as a bit of a, a negative point of view, but it's rather like you're, you're, you know, <laughs> you're looking for, for a happiness in a place where you can't find it. So instead, look look for it where it can be found, and so this this uh, um, so this profound insight and uh, recognition of all of the aspects of nature uh, as being uh, a this cycle of existence, uh, sankharas arise and pass away, and that that quality of change and unsatisfactoriness and not self that's really taken to heart, then. Um, then it's it's mysterious, but what it does, it enables us to function much more effectively in the world. So that the actions that we take, the things that we say, the 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 responsibilities that we take, they are we're much more able to work in the world because of not assuming that it's going to uh, sort of fix things forever. It's going to be some kind of permanent or absolute uh, happiness or, or, or satisfaction uh, is going to arise from that. So any thoughts, questions, uh, reflections? Silence. Okay, I'll continue. Seeing natural conditions arising and changing is called studying dharma. Having learned about this, you should then train in it. The person who still has cravings does not see. If you have anger and get upset with people, it's because you haven't penetrated the Dharma. You're still fooled by things and have no freedom. Learning counteracts this. Then there'll be an end to problems. There are problems only because there is the belief that there is me and mine. When you believe things this when you believe things this way, when thoughts of me and mine arise, countless problems will come to you endlessly. Selfishness and all kinds of troubles appear. So again, this is a, 
a very potent statement to reflect on, reflect upon. There are problems only because there is the belief that there is me and mine. It doesn't mean to say that all illnesses are automatically cured if there's not, no, no sense of self or that all debts get paid off or, or, or buildings are magically completed, uh, uh, but rather the problematicness, the, the sense of it shouldn't be this way, if only it wasn't like this, life would be fine. That kind of, um, uh, the way the mind creates problems and then thinks if only this problem wasn't there, then I would be happy. That's what he's really talking about. And it really shifts a perspective when there's a, a, a letting go of self-view and, and conceit, that eye-making and mind-making, then what we, on an ordinary level, we call problems uh, uh, in, uh, instead uh, so sort of interesting difficulties uh, or they are uh, say uh, learning opportunities and uh, there's a, a little booklet of Lumpur Liam's teachings called The Right Angle and uh, it was from a Dhamma talk he gave actually he wrote a little uh, a piece at um, when he was uh, had been staying at a Payagiri monastery for some time he wrote a little um, a kind of Dhamma uh, reflection for the community, and uh, he uh, and he said, you know, when when people ask uh, what what's the the biggest problem that you faced in your practice, or or what the, what were the main obstacles that you've encountered, he said, you know, that uh, to call them problems or obstacles, this isn't really a skillful or, or appropriate way to, to talk about such things because. Uh, yeah, as it's only when we we meet these aspects of life from self view that we think of it as a problem or as an obstacle or something that you know, shouldn't be that way. But if the if the mind looks at uh, and appreciates um, these situations with with a skillful attitude, with an absence of me and mine, then these are the very things that we develop wisdom from. So this is how how we raise our game. And uh, he, he gave the example of, uh, I think if I remember correctly, <laughs> um, maybe he, he's uh, been a few occasions when he's talked on this theme. Uh, he said it's rather like if you, are, if you have a football team, you're, you know, you're in, a, in, a, in school and you are part of a, a soccer team and you only have other, you play other schools that are local to you and you're, uh, and you're quite competent with the uh, other, uh, playing against the other local teams. Um, when you get into the 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 kind of regional championships and you're playing with you know, other schools that are far more uh, skilled and have a much bigger population and are you know, far more adept at the game, then you've got to really um, uh, you've got to up your you know, you've got to up your game to to meet them because it's not so easy. Uh, it's a uh, it's a challenge because it's a much more competent, much more skilled, much more experienced team that you're meeting he said it's exactly like this we uh, when we we meet with these kind of challenges in the in life with in terms of of uh, illness or community dynamics or family issues or social issues of one kind or another these are exactly how we raise our game this is this is what we learn from so it's uh, it's not uh, it's not wise or, or or skillful to think oh these are problems and if only i didn't have them life would be great <laughs> Rather, it's exactly what uh, what we learn from. This also brings to mind a statement of um, of Venerable Master Hua, who said that the Buddha Dharma arises from difficulty. The more difficult, the better. So those of us who think, if only I didn't have any difficulties in my life, that would be really great. <laughs>
and uh, that he and Lumpo Chao are very much on the, on the same page. That Lumpo Chao, so when everything is convenient and comfortable, everyone falls asleep. It doesn't. It doesn't. <laughs> you kind of immediately you start, you start dozing off when everything is uh, is uh, working perfectly and is smooth and easy. Then we just doze off. When a traveller arrives at a hotel, he negotiates a price for a room and informs the staff of how long he'll be staying. But as he gets comfortable there, he may begin to feel like the hotel is his home, and after a while, he forgets about moving on. When the management tells him that he must give up the room, he refuses to leave. Hey, this is where I live. Why should I leave? There is some misunderstanding, and it leads to strife. When we start to identify with our bodies and minds, and think of this life as ours, then we are similar to the traveller who doesn't want to leave the hotel. We have a wrong idea about this temporary stopping place, and we find ourselves always in struggle and conflict. Children of the same parents end up fighting, people in the same village cannot get along, citizens of the same country are at odds with each other, all because of this attachment to what they think is a self and things belonging to the self. So the Buddha said to come back and look at the body, There is one dharma to study. There is nothing we should undo or change. We say, one who sees sankhara and is purged of attachment has happiness. Mind is sankhara. Body is sankhara. Sankhara are not not us or ours. Thus, those who see sankhara are at peace. They see the mind and body, not as self, but only as sankhara. I feel this is also a very helpful... um, Reflection uh, and you know, part of our our way of life as uh, in Buddhist monasticism is we are we are homeless even if we happen to have lived in the same same place or the same room <laughs> or the same kuti for ten fifteen twenty years. Uh, the reflection is this is a roof over the head for one night. Where we are uh, uh, we are all anagara. Gara means a home. Anagara uh, anagarika anagarika uh, homeless ones. So all of us really as monastics are. Uh, anagarikas, uh, anagarikas, homeless ones, and so even if you have physically stayed in one place, the the, uh, the encouragement and, and the training is to be ready to 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 pack up and and leave and uh, and move on when the time comes to to leave it behind. Or like, as the Buddha said in the uh, verse ninety one in the Dhammapada, um, the mindful control themselves. They are not attached to any home. Like swans that abandon the lake, they leave home after home behind. So, uh, even though I very much enjoy living in Amravati, and I've got a, a kuti full of stuff, lots and lots of books, I'm a kind of book magnet. Um, being a, such a, a wordy person, books sort of keep, keep, uh, keep arriving. But um, I, uh, I, I train myself to think of that kuti as, as a roof over the head for one night. I've lived in it for the last 12 years. Um, but if circumstances changed and I had to move on, okay, give all my stuff away, the, the, put the books in the library or give them to, to the charity shop or anybody else who wants them. Uh, any other things I've got, Buddha Rupas and odds and ends, hand them out and off you go. Like a like the swan abandoning the lake, just leaving everything behind. And I feel that's that's a, uh, that's very resonant, resonant of this this principle of 
remembering this is just a hotel, you know, this is just a, a, a rented accommodation for a period of time. If the management, if the management says time to go, then uh, be ready to go. Uh, and again, as Lumpur Chawa put it, he said, uh, aging and sickness and death, they have no manners. They're not polite. They just show up and, pu- and push the door in and tell you to, to the, tell you they're taking over the place or tell you to move on. They, they have no manners. <laughs> they're not um, superb. My superb is the Thai. The, uh, not, not genteel, not polite. And so that that's uh, it's good to remember that we might think this body is our home and uh, we have a, a right to expect it to behave in a certain way or for things to keep working as we would prefer, but it's not our real home. This is just a, a, a rented accommodation. If the management says, oh, sorry, <laughs> the, uh, we, need, we need this room or this, this room is no longer uh, available for occupancy, then okay, time to go and to to be ready to, to drop things and to to move on. And I feel that it, that can be a challenging uh, reflection, particularly with the body, also our living place or our, our, our relationships and the people that we're, uh, we're familiar to, uh, we're, we are, that are familiar to us, people that we, we like to have around. But it's, uh, this kind of reflection is extremely helpful in getting us ready for for the fact that yeah no thing is ownable really no no relationship is permanent uh, and that uh, no pos- no material object can really ever be possessed um uh, <clears throat> Sumato, for quite a, a, an amount of time when people were, were taking leave he would say goodbye forever as a kind of dhamma teaching uh, and that you know, because when you part company you know who knows if you'll ever meet again so he'd say he was saying goodbye forever, and then he uh, began to realize. Well, he was being he started to be given feedback. You know, Lumpur people think that you're kind of predicting that they're going to die or you're going to die, and that they're kind of spooked by yeah, what does he know that I don't know because they they're projecting that you've got some kind of psychic inside inside track and that uh, yeah and, and they're not hearing it as a dhamma teaching they're hearing it as a, a, a prophecy or a prediction and and so that um it's freaking people out so he, after a, a while of saying that he changed his uh, changed his tactics he still stood by the principle you know, it's good when you, you say goodbye that it can, can be goodbye forever and then uh you know if 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 we meet uh <clears throat> if we meet again then uh, as it says in uh Shakespeare's Julius Caesar, uh, and if we meet again, then we will smile. But if we do not meet again, then this parting was well made. Cheerio. So, any thoughts, questions? These readings are for you. It's not just uh, I am a wordy person. I don't have to fill the air completely with the sound of my voice. Yes. Um, so, you were talking about the identification with the self, the idea of a, a permanent fixed self that thinks it's real and owns things. Um, do you would you say that we are born with or we are born with that sense or do we acquire it? And also do some people have a stronger is it stronger in some people than others? Uh, yes and yeah uh, I say well uh, I we're not born with it in a in an articulated way you know as a baby 
we the the mind is still the center of experience, but it doesn't think a baby doesn't think I. It just it feels hot, cold, hungry, full, upset, uh, happy. You know the, the the feelings are there and the sensitivity is there, but they they that sense of of I forms over the first few years. And and there's the I think developmental psychology of in the Western psychological field has sort of tracked that quite act quite specifically and accurately how the different stages of of sort of ego forming happen and I feel that's quite accurate um, and that that sense of of me um, and yeah often parents I'm mean, not I'm not a parent at least not in this lifetime but uh, people who are parents will notice that at the age of about one and a half to two their child learns how to say no like no i don't and they don't say i don't agree with that it's just like no <laughs> or or want and so that 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 the 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 forming of that uh this here doesn't agree with that you know being told to eat that or to go and sleep or to you know do whatever so that sense of an ego it, it forms over those early years of human life um based and it's informed by the instincts of liking disliking comfort discomfort being being loved and cherished or being rejected and and uh, and uh, and say alienated whatever the experience might be that that but that feeds into the, that so by the time we're um probably about four or five then there's a very distinct sense of, of, of I am this. You you know your name. You have a, a your own kind of likes and dislikes, and where you sit in the sibling setup and the, all that. It's very very. By the time you're four or five, all that's quite solidly in place. Uh, I remember one interesting moment um, when I was uh, in the early years of Chithurst. I was out on the arms run one morning, and a local family they had a, a very young daughter who was about about two or three. And the um, uh, the mother had put out uh, dry bread crusts for the birds to to to, uh, to eat, sort of scattered on the on the lawn, and the little girl had picked one up and was chewing this this piece of bread. You know, she thought bread. <laughs> you know, being t- you mean two, she didn't really distinguish between dining room table and grass, and uh, and you know, fresh and stale. It was just like bread, hungry, eat. You know, and so uh, and then as I was walking past. Uh, then her her mother said, "Oh, uh, don't do that. That's for the birds." And and then the little girl said, "But Jane's eating it." And so she referred to herself in the third person. That there was like there was this kind of uh, uh, a a, uh, a a knowing of what was going on, but they hadn't quite got an eye, but knew this 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 thing here, this center of experience is Jane. This is what Jane is. Uh, so uh, I would say <coughs> that certainly that the investment into uh, self-centered thinking and, and attitudes varies quite a lot, um, and in, according to conditioning and personality and uh, life experience and so on. So I would say it's quite a spectrum. It's going to be stronger and, and weaker in, in between between people. It's certainly not a fixed thing, and. Uh, and a lot of of that, so um, I would say, comes from the um, the living environment that we have, so that 
if um, things have been quite oppressive and you've had to sort of defend yourself or that you are very um, or you've been very uh, inflated or approved of or spoiled then that's going to strengthen the sense of, of I uh, whether it's a uh, whether it's been given a too much plus or too much minus yeah, then, then that's all of that uh, feeds the the eye making and mind making the more that that as a child grows up that they are conscious of living as part of a group part of a family part of a of a of a kind of a living community then that sense of of egotism and sort of me first is is much much weaker and so uh, another experience i have found living in northeast thailand um in in the late 70s a village the village consciousness was very it was very very different um how the village life is structured because uh, it was it's quite a harsh environment the hot seasons are very hot the cold seasons are quite cold uh, often they have floods in the the rainy season the soil is very very poor so there's <clears throat> a very strong community spirit everyone has to help each other and so then in the northeast thai village life at least up until those days it's like the the village comes first then the family then me and and it's very much in that that kind of mode and that that so that there's a very very strong sort of sharing and supportive culture there and it's probably one of the reasons why there's such a strong um practice of dhamma and also the the, the dhamma teachings mean so much and are so effective uh, for people in that society because you really you can't be selfish or you die you know <laughs> and that also it's interesting how in the village life if somebody was very egotistical or inflated they would be looked upon as you know like a really benighted <laughs> individual like, oh poor you know poor guy he really thinks he's someone important like, there were, people would feel sympathy oh what, what an idiot you know how uh how how sad how how foolish what a poor you know what a, a poor state of mind to be in so the, the quality uh, of sharing and and generosity uh, has a, a very profound effect then particularly i would say in northeast thailand uh, of, i'm not so familiar with the other regions but that's the area that i knew most directly and that um <clears throat> so as an example one of the the western monks was on a tudong walk a walk through the countryside and he was in this uh, this poor walking through this very poor village in the northeast and um uh, as he uh, uh, was passing through this village uh, uh, a local layman bought him a, a bottle of uh, of Pepsi, which is actually like a very valuable commodity in in that that region, and um, and so uh, he he didn't particularly need, need to drink it. He wasn't particularly thirsty, and so he uh, uh, he was happy to receive this as a gift. But he gave it to a, there was a number of local children around. This sort of kind of what is this white monk this kind of strange thing walking through their village and so he he gave the the bottle of pepsi to this local village girl and then um uh she uh, immediately started uh, sharing uh, passing it around to her friends and to kind of inviting everyone to come and have a, have some of this this pepsi and then he spoke pretty good thai and so he said to this little girl said oh i, I thought you'd have it for I thought that you would have it for yourself, and she kind of looked at him like, "What?" 
he said it was very, it was a very powerful encounter. Like this kind of bewildered look on her face. Like, why would I do that? Like it, <laughs> you know that. Uh, why would I just keep it for me? Like, what a strange thought. Her, her immediate thought was, this is something very special, very tasty, and quick. Tell my friends we can all have some. As like an automatic thought. And so I think that if you're in an environment that encourages a kind of community consciousness and, and generosity and sharing, then that um, seriously undercuts the the, the mind's um, feeding the kind of egotistical tendencies. So that there, there's still an ego functioning. You still, you know, you remember your name and <laughs> you can, you know, you know, uh, sort of. Uh, where you where you sit in the classroom or, or where, you know what what to do with your your uh, in the working life, but the the mind doesn't inflate that who I am and, and what my name is and where I sit in the society doesn't inflate that or make so much of it and that's where the the troubles arise. You know, ego is a a useful psychological structure. It exists for a purpose, like our hands or our fingers or our eyes or our ears. That, it's it's not there by accident. It serves a purpose, but it's when the ego gets given more value, more substantiality than it really uh, it really deserves, or is really appropriate. That's where the, the trouble begins. Where the I am is taken as some sort of absolute reality, and uh, then it, it that's the the cause of conflict <laughs> and difficulty when it's. Um, just seen as a uh, a kind of useful psychological structure that helps us get through life and organize things, <laughs> and uh, then it, it's quite fine. It's not it's not a problem. It's only when it's given more substantiality than is than is realistic, is meaningful, or is useful, then that's when the trouble begins. There's an essay by Ajahn Tanisro called "In Praise of Ego," which I think is a deliberately provocative title for a Buddhist. <laughs> But is and uh, if I recollect, it's on those kind of um, on those lines of like, yeah, it's it's not there by accident. It's not a disease. It's not kind of a like a weird pathogen that's sort of invaded our brain and taken over. It's it's evolved as part of our living in a in a group of, of like like beings. But uh, it's uh, it's because. The overemphasis on you know, the kind of the cult of the individual, and you know, I am special, I am important, or I, I am the I am the unique me that is different and, and other than everybody else, and that taken as a, as a solid fixed reality, then uh, then it's a cause of great dukkha. Okay, so to continue. If something arises into existence, it is just sankhara. There is no being or person, no one, who is happy or suffering. It's only sankhara. It is purged of happiness or suffering. There's nobody who is affected. If you see sankhara like this, you see dharma. Nobody is any sort of entity, not a person, an individual, or a being. There is no one who is elated or miserable no one who gets angry or attached, no one who dies. Things arise. Sankara are like that. Seeing Dharma is like that. Whatever arises 
in the mind of yogins, of, of practitioners, they will know the Dharma to that extent. If your view is like this, it's called merit, punya. All merits come together here at the point of peace. So again, this is a very um, sort of compact and profound statement, but uh, uh, it was also something that Lumpur Chah would quite often say, that there are, there are no people here, there are just sankharas, there are no women, no men, no, no nuns, no monks, no lay people. These are just sankharas, the, the arising and passing away. We impute, uh, we, we designate man, woman, monk, layperson, um, we, we add that on, we designate those things into, into existence, but in reality there isn't anything there. These are just formations arising and operating in a state of change and dissolving, that, that's all there is. And that uh, that con- uh, conceiving of uh, of of ourselves as as an entity, as a, a a person, as a fixed individual, as a being, that's you know something that uh, again to go against the habitual uh, everyday judgments. So I'm this person. I'm a number. I'm a human. <laughs> that uh, that seems completely straightforward and obvious. To take that and say, well, hang on a minute. What what is a living being? What is a person? We call a person, uh, we call ourselves a person. What is that? What is a living being? And the, 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 the development of wise reflection and insight meditation is a lot to do with, with deconstructing those, those habits of, of uh, assuming a person is here or, or looking into what really is uh, the, the essence of this, uh, this life. And uh, the more that that quality of of wisdom is uh, clarified, the more there is a <coughs> what is present is a quality of awareness of knowing, and then the personal aspects of the the sight or the feelings or the, the sensations of a body arise and pass away. The memories or ideas, the emotions of a, of a person, the person arise and pass away, but it becomes more and more clear that that which knows the person or the personal, isn't really a person. It's not female or male, it's not old or young, it doesn't have a nationality or an age. It's aware, it's a, it's a quality that, that knows, but that it's knowing the personal, but it's not, uh, it's not a person in and of itself. It's also interesting that the, uh, the Scottish philosopher David Hume, back in, uh, in, uh, in Scotland, <laughs> uh, about two or three hundred years ago, um, that uh, in the uh, in the Western philosophical field, he had a very similar insights into this. He said, you know, we we say uh, we talk about ourselves. Uh, you know, I I experience this. I do that. I say this. But when I well, when I look into into this mind and I try to find the person, the the self that is doing the thinking, I try to find the person who is feeling or seeing or hearing. I can't find anything there. There's seeing, there's hearing, there's feeling, there's remembering, but the person that is doing it, all of that, I can't find such a thing. <laughs> so that the, it, from his own perspective, he was uh, developing, a, I would say, quite an accurate insight into, into not-self. And it, uh, it's conceivable, there are, there are theories that he did actually have some Buddhist influence, that uh, there is a his great treatise was called uh, the Treatise on Human Nature, and he wrote it in France, 
at a, Je- uh, at a, a town where there was a Jesuit seminary and one of the Jesuits who was living there had just come back from living in Tibet for quite some time. Desideri, that was his name. And so there's, there are theories that possibly David Hume uh, hung out with this, uh, de- uh, the Jesuit father who'd come back from Tibet and over some cafe in, in, uh, in France. They were, uh, <coughs> I don't know if coffee was around in those days, but anyway... <laughs> Some kind of suitable restaurant or some kind of eatery, a watering hole. The two of them might have met each other, and he might have picked up his ideas on on not self from chatting with with Hippolito uh, Desideri was his name, and uh, what he had picked up in Tibet from his uh, contact with with Buddhist teachings. It's a bit, little bit speculative. It's possible, but certainly uh, uh, that um, that same kind of investigation is very very close to what is. Uh, say the the pattern of development of, of insight, looking into thinking and feeling, experiencing, uh, sensing, and that yes, there's hearing, there's seeing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking, uh, and so forth, arising and passing away. But looking for an entity or a fixed thing that is the the doer, the experiencer, no thing can be found, and no owner, no doer, can genuinely be found. Another source of reflection I, I, I like to quote, um, again from a different, slightly non-Theravada source, but what's uh, called the Vaj, Vajra uh, Prajna Paramita Sutra, the, um, uh, from the, the Northern Buddhist tradition. And uh, there's, a, uh, there's a lot of insight in, uh, in that sutra, I, I find. And uh, one of the passages goes something like, Living beings, living beings. Why are they called living beings? They're called living beings because there are no living beings. That's why they're called living beings. And uh, how does a bodhisattva carry... Uh, a bodhisattva makes the vow to carry all living beings across to enlightenment. How does uh, a bodhisattva carry living beings across? By realizing there are no living beings. That's how living beings are carried across. So it's a bit perplexing uh, and paradoxical, but uh, I feel that's... It's great stuff <laughs> and very worthy of contemplation. That's the Vajra, Vajra Prajna Paramita Sutra. Um, so that uh, that uh, sense of uh, a being or ourselves as an entity uh, where the mind is designating or determining a, a, a being into existence. And when that designating stops, when the mind doesn't add on that kind of um, elaboration, then what's present is seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, knowing, and uh, the, as Lumpur Chah puts it here, there isn't, there isn't any sort of entity, not a person, not an individual, not a being, no one who is elated or miserable, no one who gets angry or attached, no one who dies. So that that, that which knows birth and death isn't, isn't born and, and dying. It knows those beginnings and endings, but it's not identified or, or limited by those. <coughs> To continue, if we try to adjust or change dharma because of a lack of clear vision, there will be suffering. Take the breath, for example. It is continuously flowing in and out without a break. The body depends on it for life. 
It is nourishment, like food. It enters the body and supports it. The air goes in and out, so the sankara can survive. In and not out, or out and not in, there's trouble. But having been born, we don't want to get old. We don't want to die. Being together, we don't wish to part. Having things, we don't want to lose them. But it can't turn out as we wish, because this is just the way things are. So uh, again, he's saying, you know, if we want birth without death, an in-breath without, is like wanting an in-breath without an out-breath, or an out-breath without an in-breath. You know, you only want happiness, you don't want suffering. You want to, you want to be born and you don't want to get old. It's like, it can't work that way. That's, that's not the way that, that life operates. We are um, wanting birth without death, wanting beginning without ending, and that's just uh, the the way, not the way that the nature works. So we don't want we being together. We don't wish to part. Having things, we don't want to lose them. But uh, but uh, it can't turn out as we wish. So we, if we set the mind up in that way, wanting to to have a body and to to sort of relish this life, but want to, expecting never to get sick or to to always be. Um, uh, in a state of vitality and to, to keep living and then we're, we're wanting something that can't be so we, we necessarily will be disappointed and as it says in the chanting that we do that then the five subjects for recollection uh, for frequent recollection uh, I'm of the nature to age I'm of the nature to sicken I'm of the nature to die all that is mine beloved and pleasing will become otherwise will become separated from me and that, that people can listen to that and think, well, that's a very sour, uh, negative perspective. Uh, uh, but rather, it's, in a sense, this is the small print of, <laughs> this, is, this is a small print that uh, we uh, haven't bothered reading. It's like, this, this has always been the case. This is nothing new, that uh, uh, the, the body is in a state of change. It's getting older all the time, and it can't possibly stay healthy all the time, and it'll die one day. And anything that is in a state of supposedly being owned, it can't stay close or can't stay nearby, and it's going to change and break up or disappear. There's going to be separation. That's not a, a negative outlook on life. It's just that's how things uh, how things work. That's the the nature of uh, of the conditioned realm. So those five subjects for recollection for frequent recollection, they are. Uh, I think as in the question yesterday, they're, they're there to help get your attention onto what the habits are that uh, that of thinking, oh, I don't want to get old, or I, somehow I can avoid getting sick, and and uh, and uh, you know, uh, and I don't want to think about death, and uh, sort of put off over the horizon. That uh, it's saying, no, this is this is the program. This is this is the small print on on what uh, what you what you signed in the contract. Uh, here it is. This is this is the 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 program, and so then mysteriously by uh, uh, acknowledging that, by accepting that, then the mind is not following in those those tracks. It doesn't invest in those 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 strange uh, hopes or, or wishes in the same way that when the signs of getting older or the signs of sickness and uh, and death and so forth are around, rather than feeling anything has gone wrong it's like well of course <laughs> this has always been part of the program so there isn't that feeling of wrongness and that 
that sense of wrongness is really what dukkha is. It's that that uh, attitude of it shouldn't be this way. This is this is unfair, or it's uh, it, this 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 should be avoidable. And some unfortunately, it's not being avoided this time. <coughs> so, any thoughts, reflections, questions? Yes. Um, I remember in this uh, program that uh, we shouldn't die, we should always be healthy and successful and uh, reach all possible successes in our lives. It seems that to go against this idea, you go against your conditioning of your childhood because that's what your parents invested, like they raised children and from a very young age they program them to be successful, to attain this and that because it's their security and it's their future pleasure. So. Um, they get approved for successes. They uh, all these emotional reactions. Mm-hmm. They program the mind then to be very afraid of losing, of not succeeding, and so on. So basically, when you go against it, you go against very early conditioning, mm-hmm. and it seems that um, it's very difficult uh, to go against this idea, and only probably with your present experience of your bodily reactions and dukkha, what it gives this striving then you can contradict because all your thinking is involved in this I have to succeed even in spiritual life. I have mm-hmm. to yes, succeed. yeah. It can be very, very strong conditioning. And get approved and all this so it seems that very early conditioning very difficult to go against. It's so it's then uh, it's a um, an advantage not to have been very successful when you were a child. <laughs> <laughs> if you were completely average and the, uh, the, I mean, it's a, it's a sweeping statement, but um, that, yeah, the conditioning can be very, very strong. And, um, and so that, that, um, that sense of, of recognizing how much is invested in that, uh, but, uh, but also um, the looking at the results of that, that, that during that, that conditioning process, it's often the case that you live with a lot of anxiety. If you succeed at something, then you got to so you got to succeed again. You got to try harder next time. You've got to, uh, and there's a, the pressure to to do to do better all the time. And so that it's uh, uh, getting a perspective on that is uh, uh, and reflecting on oh well, this is where this has come from. It, it's a very helpful thing to see that. Um, you know, being terrified of failure and then any kind of success or goodness is a kind of glow in your heart. Yes, you know, I got a gold star or, you, you know, you, yes, I succeeded. That uh, just to be able to see the shallowness of that and also the fearfulness of, 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 um, uh, of that kind of competitive attitude or you know, that encouragement or the being conditioned to that particular value system. Just to... A lot of our practice, I would say, is getting feeling the strength of the conditioning that we experience, and the, that how uh, succeeding or being approved, how how strong that glow can feel. I think, well, it's just a glow; <laughs> it's just a sweet feeling. That's all. Just like a sugary cake. It's just that's all. And then when you you fail or something is. Um, uh, yeah, there, there's a, uh, a a loss, and the bitterness of that. Well, it's just it's just bitterness. It's not a a uh, 
it's not a, something that is a, an absolute disaster. When we're growing up and the kind of things we, we uh, ex- experience with in school or in the sports field or in arts or whatever, and that we can, those conditionings, that conditioning can be very, very strong. But, um, and it's hard to get a perspective on it because the people around you are all promoting that and saying, all right, well done, you know, pat you on the head and, and you hang up all your prizes on the on the wall and cups on the on the shelf and so on and your parents say look at all, <laughs> look at all the glittering prizes um that to, to be able to to uh, get a perspective on it at the, at the time when we're children is is quite hard but as we we grow up and we see well what was all that about <laughs> and you can see the the kind of um strength of conditioning just to be able to know that you can't just make, go make it go away, but you can uh, you can recognize the the power of conditioning that that's there. And, uh, the um, the uh, you know, I noticed that for myself. I was very uh, very strongly conditioned to succeed, and uh, my my parents were both complete academic failures. <clears throat> they had, uh, I think, my my mother was good at art, uh, and so she she got in. She managed to get into art college as a sculptor, and my father managed to fluke one pass at German um, in his the public exams. It was called school certificate in those days in this country, and, uh, and only because the 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 passage he had quite by chance practiced to translate the night before the exam was exactly the same passage they got given in the exam the next day. So he, so that's that's the one public exam he passed was was German because of a, he fluked it because of having done it the night before. Um, but then when my sisters and I started going to school, we started getting high marks and coming top of the class, and our parents were like, "Oh, what? Where did you come from?" You know, they were kind of startled how how well we were doing. And particularly my eldest sister, uh, my eldest sister. Who was uh, extraordinarily successful, kind of amazing uh, brain, and um, and was always always top of the class. And and uh, and speaking of of German translations, one time she did an English to German translation with no mistakes in it, and the uh, I remember her sort of showing off that the her German teacher had written in capital letters in red all across the the bottom. Whatever the German word for unbelievable is, <laughs> there was absolutely like no mistakes in the whole uh, a whole translation. It was completely perfect. So when she, the only exam she ever failed was she wanted to get into the Royal Ballet School, and she failed by one tenth of a mark, and she was absolutely devastated. She'd never failed at anything, and so that was a powerful experience i was i'm four years younger than her <clears throat> so she was about 12 or 13 when she was trying to get into the royal ballet school and she failed by this tiny fraction of a mark and she was just in tears for days and days she she had never failed like she'd never had that experience and and the seeing her just kind of completely broken apart wow you know the tears are not stopping it just because of and you know, and I as a little brother could say, well, early ballet school, I mean, come on. <coughs> not that important. <laughs> not a very help very brotherly, but not a very helpful thing to say. But uh, she was completely devastated. But in later years she found out 
that uh, someone who did go to the Royal Ballet School said, you know, it, it probably was not your technique at all, but what they would do is if you're the wrong shape, then they can't flaw, they can't fault you on your technique, but they would fail you because you're not you wouldn't look right in the the uh, in the lineup of the the corps de ballet. So that the you probably performed perfectly, but they'd marked you down because you weren't uh, you weren't the right shape for the for the for their ballet the, the the way the way they wanted it to look on stage. So. so she, <sighs> <laughs> I think she was about 30 years later. She was quite, yes. So I, so I didn't really fail, you know. So, but that, it, to be able to see those kind of, that kind of conditioning is, uh, uh, is helpful. To, you can't just make it go away, but that how crushing it can be to fail or to be criticized or to get things wrong and just to feel, oh, this is, this is a bitter taste, full stop. Or when things go well, you get praised, or you get a gold star in your monastic life. Like, well done, Anagarika Virginia, you did a great job looking after this or that. Then, rather than investing in that and getting getting drunk on it, then it's that's this is the sweetness of being approved or being praised. It's like this, full stop. So that then you're you're recognizing that conditioning. You're not trying to suppress it or, or pretend it's not there, but you're not creating more investment in it. And so then, then the 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 kind of um, uh, say the the lessons that are learned from that are very are very valuable. You know, I, I spent years trying to be the kind of champion monk, the kind of the best, because you know that's what you, you're doing. You you don't, you don't realize that you're doing that. You're trying to outcompete all the other, being more monkly than all the other monks. You know. To kind of do everything more and better, and it, and it's it's just the same kind of conditioning. You don't realize that's what's going on until you, know, you just see these patterns over and over and recognize. Oh, why does it matter how long I sit in the meditation hall, or, or like keeping a staying up late in the in the dhamma hall, kind of seeing if anyone's still there? You've got to be the last one sitting there. I'm going to be the last one. I will be the last one. Yeah. I'm, yeah, I will never nod. They will never see me nod. That kind of thing. And, uh, you know, it's ridiculous in its own way, but very ordinary that we have this sort of, we want to, we, we, we it's like I actually chatting with a, with a, um, uh, some Christian uh, monastic friends. They said, yeah, it's a, the, uh, uh, the, these tendencies that we have, you know, they, they do carry on. You know, that we have as lay as lay people that they carry on into the monastic life. So, if you are very competitive or very extreme in your behaviour as a lay person, you'll still be that way as a as a as a monk. So he said, the the ones who used to drink everybody under the table now fast everybody under the table. <laughs> You're going to be the last person standing at the party. You're the last one. <laughs> Your fast will last longer than everybody else's, so that so being able to you, we can kind of laugh at it uh, eventually, <laughs> but it can get it can feel very important, very significant you know, along the way, and that just seeing what the mind invests value in, yeah, you know, how many years you have in the in, in the sangha or what kind of role you have in the community or uh, what uh, the the kind of 
various value systems that, that, that we have. People are, oh, you're, you're, you're the best tea maker we've got. You're really, really good. Oh. <laughs> this, you know, that doesn't mean to say you should try not to, not to make the tea well, but uh, just f- noticing that, that kind of reaction if you are praised or you're criticized, like, is this supposed to be tea? Did you make this on purpose? <laughs> what did you put in this? Like, <laughs> This kind of heartbreak, like oh my goodness, I I failed terribly, and that you know you're not deliberately trying to upset everyone with what you thought was tea, <laughs> but this is just to take that as a moment to to consider. Oh yeah, look at that. This is this is the I got it all wrong and everyone hates me feeling. That's what this is. Uh, this is the I failed miserably uh, feeling. Is like this. And so then, being able to know it just as a as a feeling, as a as an emotional tone, then there's a freedom from it. You're not defining who and what you are on that. You just know that because of this conditioning, here's the cause, here's the effect. Like I was saying in the morning reflection, look, oh, this is where this comes from. This is the cause. It feels like this. So if this is attached to, the mind makes more of this. Where's it going to go? If the mind lets go of it. Yeah, where's it going to go? So that uh, that contemplation of causes, where, where things have come from, is is very very helpful. We can't just change a personality or change our conditioning. You you can't undo causes that have already been created, but you can change the attitude to the effects that have come from those causes. Does that make sense? So that you can't undo causes that have happened in the past, <clears throat> but you can. In this moment, the way the mind relates to the effects of those causes, you, you plant fresh causes in the present for, you know, for peace and wisdom in the in the future. The seven o'clock has come round already, so I'll leave it there for today. <clears throat>